Revelation chapter 19. Uh, maybe uh, to some it sounds like an unusual place for a Christmas message, but I trust that God will bless our hearts from this portion of his word today. Revelation chapter 19, I want to begin reading in verse number 1. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Hallelujah! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat upon the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God! All ye, his saint, all ye his servants and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude. And as the voice of many waters. And as the voice of mighty thunderings saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation chapter 19 in your Bibles this morning. His identity And his character has often been shrouded with mystery. So testifies 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 where the Bible says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. No one will argue. It is without any controversy. This was a mystery. That God would become human? That God would wrap himself in human flesh? Without controversy, this is mysterious. The mystery has shrouded his identity and his character for the last 2,000 years. And at this time of year, when professing Christians are thinking of his birth, it does us good to pause and ask the larger question, just who is he? Who is this baby in a manger? And ask ourselves as Christian people the question, how well do we know him? Jesus' identity and character is fully revealed in Scripture. And and the essence of who we are 
And, and what we anticipate throughout of eternity is all wrapped up in the identity and character of this one we call Jesus. The Old Testament prophets scratched their heads in, in bewilderment trying to understand what they were writing down. Because they wrote down things that appeared to be contradictory. They wrote down that the Messiah would be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then they would write down that he was a king reigning in righteousness, the Lord God coming to rule with a strong arm. They would write down that he was a man born in Bethlehem of the seed of David, but they'd also write down that he was God whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. These seem to be contradictions. The Old Testament preachers that God was inspiring to record his very word were confused. They didn't understand. They wrote down that he was one crucified in the agony of defeat. And yet they wrote down that he was the victorious conquering king. Establishing an eternal kingdom of peace. The mystery of his identity came into the New Testament. As people watched him and listened to him. And scratched their heads and said, isn't he the guy from Nazareth? Isn't, isn't he the, the carpenter's son? Who is he? Even Jesus' own followers laid into his ministry. Jesus asked, who are people saying that I am? And they said, well, the talk around town is that you're Elijah back from the grave. You're Jeremiah. You're one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up, didn't he? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Who is Jesus Christ? The question of controversy and confusion. And it lasts today. The cults tell us he's an angel that God created. The Mormons tell us he's Lucifer's brother. The liberals tell us he's just a human being like you and me. And the confusion reigns in our world today. Just who is this babe in a manger? That historic person whose birth divided our calendar into everything that happened before he was born from everything that happened after he was born. And who caused such a stir in the ancient world and then left in the disgrace of a Roman crucifixion. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, the last book of our Bible, the book of Revelation, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's a book that, that by its very name and by its first verse declares that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave. It is the revealing, it is the unfolding, and it's the manifesting of who Jesus is. And it concludes with, a, with a, a dramatic and a climactic end with God dealing with man's sinful rebellion on planet earth. God ends the story with a grand revelation of Jesus Christ whose entrance into humanity we celebrate this week. I have for probably over 40 years at least ranging back to that time frame 40 years ago, I have preached at least one sermon every Christmas season on the 
topic, who is Jesus Christ? And those sermons have always taken a key passage of the Bible, Old or New Testament, that declares the identity and character of Jesus Christ. I believe we need to focus on Jesus Christ at Christmas time. We need to know who he is. But in all those years, I don't believe I've ever preached from that series from Revelation chapter 19, but it's been on my heart this year and in recent weeks to come to the end of the Word of God, to the climactic conclusion of God's story, to the book that is named the Revelation of Jesus Christ, to ask and answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? And here in Revelation chapter 19, I find that God gives us three pictures of who Jesus Christ is. And I want us to consider these three pictures this morning. The first picture in the early part of Revelation chapter 19 that I find is a, the picture of a conquering king. Revelation 19 begins with the words, and after these things. Now, if you're even a nominal student of the Bible, you can't read that and keep going if you don't know what was recorded in the chapters leading up to that statement. After these, after what? And you back up to see what has just happened. That gives rise to this great 19th chapter. And you go back and you find out that something climactic has happened on planet earth. The story of it goes all the way back to Genesis 10 where the family of Noah came off the ark after the flood and God told them to scatter and multiply and replenish the earth, which they began to do. And yet the generations that came said, we don't want to replenish the earth. We want to build a city. And in that city, we will build a tower. And we will reach to heaven by our own doings. We will not do what God told our forefathers to do. And they built the Tower of Babel, the city of Babylon. That city throughout the Bible has stood as the, as the origin of all false teaching. The origin of rebellion against God in the, in the after the flood world. And, and that city comes into prominence here in the book of Revelation. After these things, we'll go back to chapter 14. If you've got your Bibles open, just flip back to chapter 14 and look at verse number 8. Chapter 14, verse 8, there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That city made all nations. What does that mean? That means that city is the center of a global one-worldism. And all nations, rather than worshiping the one true God, they went after other gods and committed spiritual fornication from God. And now, in the book of Revelation, we see that she meets her end. Look at chapter 16 in verse number 19. 
chapter 16, verse 19. The Bible says, And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. The great and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And then chapter 17 and 18 chronicle the destruction of a one world government and a one world religion centered in the city of Babylon. The location of the original rebellion against God back in Genesis chapter 10. Chapter 17 verse 1 says, And there came one of the seven angels which had seven vials and talked with me saying, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Verse number 5 says, Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the great, mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Chapter 18, verse number 2, the Bible says, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Chapter 18 verse number 20 says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven. Notice that. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you of her. And then chapter 19 verse 1, after these things. After the total destruction of planet earth, after God once and for all, finally destroys the one world globalism of a united world in rebellion against him. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power under the Lord our God. I read down through the first six verses and over, again, over and over again I, I see that verse 2, the uh, true and righteous are his judgments. And verse number 3, they, again they said hallelujah. Verse number 4, and, and, and they said amen, hallelujah. And, and in, in verse number 6, they said hallelujah over and over and over again in these verses. There's a great voice coming out of heaven with the smoke of the judgment of one world globalism on earth ascending up to heaven. Heaven in a united voice says, finally, hallelujah. Why, do we, why will we be there saying hallelujah? Verse number two says, for true and righteous are his judgments. God has judged. Hallelujah. Now you know that the word hallelujah, which is only used in the New Testament in this chapter, but it's used throughout the Old Testament, it literally means praise to Jehovah. Hallelujah. Yah is Jehovah. Hallelujah is praise be to Jehovah. And so heaven in a, in, in a loud voice cries out, Praise be to Jehovah for his righteous, his, 
His judgments on earth are true and righteous. Praise be to Jehovah. Now, now who is Jehovah who is being praised? Well, lest you should question and wonder, come down to verse number 13. Verse number 13 tells us that he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. You that are Bible students know that God used the Apostle John to record the book of Revelation. This is the Apostle John, exiled on the Isle of Patmos. You also know that God used the Apostle John to write the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory of God as of the only begotten of the Father. You know that God used the Apostle John to record the places in the New Testament where Jesus Christ is identified and called the word of God. And when heaven raises its voice saying hallelujah for the judgments of God, we are praising Jesus Christ. For his judgments on earth. The first picture we see in chapter number 19. Is that Jesus Christ is a conquering king. Let it never be forgotten. This meek mild little baby in a manger. Wrapped in a swaddling cloth. Is a conquering king. He will rule and reign his universe forever. And one day. He will destroy this global one-worldism of our world that unites against God and is drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. And when God's had enough, and when God's offers of grace and mercy have been extended to the limit of which he will offer them, Jesus Christ will show up and Jesus Christ will judge this world he is a conquering king. You know, Christian people long for righteousness, don't we? We long for righteousness. We're not giddy and excited about judgment falling on anyone. The book of Proverbs tells us to never even rejoice when our enemy falls. We don't get giddy and excited about God's judgment of the earth. It's a sad, difficult thing. And yet we must never forget that it is the path to a righteous kingdom, an eternal kingdom of God where sin is destroyed. And those who have rebelled against him will have to give an account for their rebellion. We long for righteousness. We hate sin. And when we are in heaven and God's righteous judgments are finally meted out, we will respond by saying hallelujah. Praise be to Jesus Christ, all-powerful God reigns over his world. He'll return to earth. He will uh, be joined with all those in heaven who are with him, who will come back to earth. He will conquer earth's rebellion, as this is talking about. He will bind Satan. He will establish his kingdom on earth, and that kingdom will will last for 1,000 years, after which Satan will be loosed and Jesus Christ will deal with Satan one final time 
and cast him into the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, where he will suffer day and night forever and ever, the book of Revelation tells us. You can read all of that in chapter 19 and 20 of Revelation. And then, after that final great white throne judgment at the end of chapter 20, he will create a new heavens and a new earth for his people for all of eternity. And we can read the description of that in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Revelation, the Bible, ends with a great revealing of the character and identity of who Jesus Christ is. And he is a conquering king who wins the battle against Satan and sin for all time. Realize that babe in a manger is the all-powerful conquering king who will one day destroy all sin. But that's not the only picture. There's another picture in this chapter. And that is he is the lover of my soul. Look at verse number 7. Verse number 7 of chapter 19 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Verse number 9, And he said, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, God teaches us a lot about our relationship to him through the image of marriage. Through a wedding. We are collectively viewed in the Bible as the bride of Christ. Which teaches us that individually we have a relationship to Jesus Christ. That is a relationship birthed out of love. I have a relationship to Jesus as a bride to her bridegroom. And I am the bride. We are the bride of Christ. Which means we are, he is the lover of our souls. Our relationship to him is birthed out of love and compassion for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in the Bible views the person who gives the gospel to a lost person as a bit of a cupid or a matchmaker. Paul in writing to the members of the church at Corinth, church that he had planted people that he had taken the gospel to. He said, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you to Christ as a chaste virgin. Paul said, I feel like I'm the one who espoused you to Christ. You know what the soul winner does? Someone who gives the gospel to an unsaved person reaches up with one hand and gets a hold of the hand of God and reaches down with the other hand and gets the hand of a lost sinner and brings them together and says, I'd like the two of you to meet each other. Paul said, I have espoused you to one husband. I was the matchmaker that brought the proposal of marriage, the gospel proposal of marriage to Jesus Christ. I brought you the proposal and delivered it to you as an unsaved person. I prayed for you. I witnessed to you. I told you how wonderful Jesus is and how great his love is. I, I, I got you together and espoused you. I made you an engaged couple. I delivered you the proposal of marriage. And you became the bride of Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's what a person does who gives out a gospel track and witnesses to somebody. Paul saw himself in this amazing role with these believers that he had presented the gospel to. And he was jealous over them. He was jealous over them because he had a dramatic part 
in bringing them and Jesus Christ into a espousal relationship. The spiritual relationship between me and Jesus is wrapped up in God's love. And God uses people to deliver the proposal of marriage. But at its core, the proposal of marriage exists because God loves me. And God loves you. God wants to be married to you. He wants you to be the wife of Jesus Christ. He wants a relationship birthed out of love that will last for all of eternity. And here in our text, we read, Rejoice, be glad and rejoice, give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Finally, after all these years of being engaged, you talk about a long engagement, I've been engaged for over 50 years to Jesus Christ. After all of these years of being espoused to Jesus Christ, the day will come when the marriage ceremony will occur and we'll sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the bride of Christ and the bridegroom will sit down together and enjoy the relationship that was birthed out of God's love for us. I am in a relationship to Jesus Christ that was spun out of his love for me. And that was an undeserved love. That was an unearned love. I didn't deserve, I don't deserve to be engaged to Jesus Christ. But he loves me. He doesn't love me because of who I am. Because the Bible says that, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In my worst estate, in my ugliest appearance, unmarriable, God loved me. And his love made a proposal, an offer to me to become his bride. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's the lover of my soul. And I don't deserve his love. And I can't earn his love. He loves me anyway. That's called unconditional love. He loves me even though there's nothing in me that's lovable. He loves me. And he offered me proposal to become his bride. Jesus Christ, that little baby in a manger, is the lover of your soul. But there's a final picture that I see in this passage. As God, in the final book of the Bible, makes the final climactic grand revelation of who Jesus Christ is, most of the book of Revelation reveals him in the first picture. He is a conquering king. But then he's also the lover of my soul that invited me to be his bride. And then there's a third picture. He is the source of my righteousness. This is a strange statement in this chapter. Being the bride of Christ is a matter of his grace in paying my sin debt and wooing 
me to himself through the convicting, drawing power of the Holy Spirit and the person who shared the gospel with me and introduced me to the gospel message. And God wooed me through the Spirit of God and through the Word of God and through a soul winner. God wooed me and offered a proposal of marriage that I did not earn or deserve. That I am His bride is a matter of grace. The grace of God that I don't deserve that made me his bride. However, the kind of bride I will be at the end of my life involves the ongoing work of his love operating in my life I want you to notice carefully in verse number 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. Doesn't say Jesus made her ready by his grace, clothing her in the imputed righteousness of Christ. It says she made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is, linen is the righteousness of the saints, not the imputed righteousness of Christ. That I am his bride is unearned, undeserved grace of God in my life. But the kind of bride I am has a lot to do with what I do. And getting myself ready so that I will be clothed with my righteousness that is described as fine linen, clean and white. This is not what I would have written if I was writing the Bible. This is not how I would have told the final story of the revelation of Jesus Christ. But this is how the Holy Spirit wrote it. What kind of bride will you be when you're presented? Paul was worried about the church members at Corinth. That's why he said, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. He went on in that chapter to say, I fear Satan will have corrupted your minds from the simplicity of Christ. He said, I espoused you to one husband. That I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul saw himself as actively involved in the sanctifying growth and development of the church members in Corinth. He saw himself as involved in the process of the Holy Spirit conforming them to the image of Jesus Christ. He saw himself as responsible to God. As being there with them. Helping them. Jealous over them. Jealous that Satan will get in. Jealous that they'll listen to this person. Jealous that this worldly practice will impact their life. Worried that this situation will get them off track. He was jealous over them with a godly jealousy. Why? He did all the work of getting them engaged. But that wasn't the end of the picture. He said, I espouse you to one husband, 
Now he said, I'm looking forward to the day that I'll present you as the bride to the bridegroom. And when I present you to the bridegroom, I don't want you to have a dress on that's got smudges of grease and dirt. I, I, I don't want you to have, have on your cheek uh, some mud that's been smeared on you. I don't want your hair to be all disheveled. I don't want you to present you as a, as a bride to Christ, as one who has lived for the world, who has sought after the things of the world. He said, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I want to present you to Christ, a chaste virgin who's never cheated on your bridegroom, who's never played around with the world, who has never been corrupted by the influences of your culture. I want to present you to Christ chaste. And I'm jealous over you. I fear for what is happening in your life. And he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians to deal with his fear of the corrupting influence of a culture into the lives of the members of the church that he had planted there in Corinth. But I want you to notice, look a little, little, little bit more careful. Verse number says, uh, seven, verse number seven says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. Who? Verse number six, the Lord God omnipotent who's reigning. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For his Wife has made herself ready. Why are we glad and rejoicing and giving honor to Jesus when it was his wife that got herself ready? It would be like going to a wedding and the bride comes down the middle aisle and everyone says, wow, look at the beautiful dress and look at her hair. Look at all, oh, she just looks perfect. This is beautiful. She's beautiful. I've never seen her so beautiful. Everything is great. And so you walk over to the bridegroom and said, hey, you did a good job, buddy. And the mother-in-law says, he did a good job. Nothing. Should have seen how many hours we worked getting her to look like that. And yet here we are going to the bridegroom and saying to the bridegroom, Wow! We honor you. Because your wife got herself ready and she's dressed in fine linen, clean and white, and it's her own righteousness. But we're honoring you. Does that make sense? Look a little bit more careful at your Bible. Verse number 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. It was granted to her. A couple of weeks ago in our Wednesday night prayer meeting, we were... We were during our time together praying, as a, as we, we were reading and, and, and just observing the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church members in Ephesians chapter 3. And he prayed in that prayer, he prayed that God would grant unto them by the power of his own glory that he would grant unto them that they might be strengthened in the inner man that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. We learned as we looked at that in that time of prayer that evening that God grants to us 
that we can become strengthened in our inner man with Christ-likeness, with a conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. We couldn't do that on our own. You can read your Bible through every day. You can, you can go to preaching. You can, you, can, you can do all you want to do. But if God does not grant you, according to his power, to be able to incorporate that which God brings to you through his word and cause your inner man to be strengthened and conform to the image of Christ, it won't happen. God grants to us the ability to respond to the word of God and to respond to the spirit of God so that we can be conformed to his image and we can have our own righteousness clean and white. You see, God grants unto us God's love. God loves us way too much to leave us the way he found us. God loves us way too much to leave us the way we were when he saved us. God continues the operation and work in our lives day by day, enabling us, granting unto us that we are capable of responding to the Spirit of God and the Word of God so that we become a pure Chaste bride presented to him. Oh, how does God accomplish this work? He accomplishes it through his persistent love. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, You husbands, make sure you emulate Jesus Christ in the way you love your wife. How does Jesus love his bride? He gave himself for it. And then he continues to work on his bride that he might cause his bride to become, let me see, lost, my mind's not grabbing the phrase I was looking for. In Ephesians chapter number 5, that, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. God, Jesus Christ, in love with his bride, saves her when she doesn't deserve it, but then his love goes to work. What is he doing? He's sanctifying and cleansing his bride. He's washing his bride with the word of God, the power of the life-changing word of God. The power of the word of God in your life. I was talking to Kalyani uh, before uh, service began. Asked her a little bit about her salvation from Hinduism uh, back in India. And, and shared, just, uh, shared just a little bit. I said, what, what introduced you to the gospel? She said, somebody saw her with the dot and the regalia of Hinduism. And all they did is got her a New Testament and gave it to her. She set it on her bookshelf. And it was there for a couple of years. One day she was at home. She picked up the New Testament and began to read it. The power, the power of the life-changing word of God. How is it that I become a chaste bride to be presented to Jesus Christ on my wedding day? God grants unto me to be able to respond to his never-ending love that takes the word of God every time I read it, every time I study it, every time I pour over it, every time the word of God saturates my life, the word of God changes me. The word of God washes me. The word of God makes me a chaste virgin. 
How does God do this? He grants unto me the ability to understand what the Spirit of God is saying to me as I read His Word of God. And let me throw out one other little thought I learned this week as I was studying. The passage in in 2 Corinthians where Paul said, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy for I have espoused you unto one husband. The verb espoused is in the middle voice. The middle voice means the person doing the action of the verb does so for their own involvement and for their own benefit. Paul, as spouse, he delivered the wedding proposal and he was involved in the salvation experience of that unsaved person and he said, I see myself as having a dramatic part of that because I'm going to stay involved until I present you as a chaste virgin and I'm going to write you letters and I'm going to counsel you and I'm going to show you what you ought not to do and I'm going to show you what you ought to do and I'm going to stay involved in your life as a mentor, as a Christian friend because I'm part of how God grants unto you to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and a Christian mentor that works together to bring you to Jesus Christ as a chaste virgin bride. Oh, I tell you, who is this Jesus Christ? You know, when, when that chaste virgin is presented, look at verse number 6. Look at verse 6 one more time. He's getting ready to present the chaste virgin. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us rejoice, be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. When we are presented to Jesus Christ, Jesus, here are the redeemed. Here are the people that got saved on planet earth. Here are the people that received the delivery of your proposal of marriage. And they got on their face before you and they asked you to come into their life and save their unworthy souls. And you saved them. And then the Spirit of God and the Word of God and Christian friends stayed involved in their life. And through a life process, God granted unto them the ability to be cleansed and become a chaste virgin bride. And she's now being presented to Jesus Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the thunderous applause, like many waters, like great mighty thunderings, the thunderous applause, perhaps all of the created angels that see the end result of the accomplishment of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And they see the redeemed of the ages that were born again by the, by the forgiveness of sin through the blood of Christ. And they see us. And they see us presented to Jesus Christ as a chaste virgin. And then the angels begin to applaud. And they begin to shout. And they begin to glorify God. Because the marriage of the, of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And the wife is ready. And she's beautiful. Because God granted unto her the ability 
to respond to the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the mentoring of Christian friends for her life to be changed and to become just like Jesus Christ. Who is this baby up there in a manger? He's a conquering king. He's the lover of my soul. And he's the source of any righteousness that is developed in my life through the work of the Spirit of God and the Word of God and my Christian friends who have counseled me through my life. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Will he be the conquering king that judges you and destroys you because you never got saved? Is he the lover of your soul that somebody brought his hand and your hand together and you accepted the proposal of marriage and were born again? Is he the source of your righteousness? Are you in the process of being sanctified by the Spirit and Word of God? And are you cooperating with all of his efforts? Are you reading your Bible? Are you studying your Bible? Are you seeking good counsel? Are you listening to the advice of people who have been down the road further than you in Christianity? Are you cooperating with God granting to you the ability for your life to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ so that you can be a chaste, holy virgin when you're presented to him one day in the future. Who is Jesus Christ in your life this Christmas?